0: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast, production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game, and we are going outside the industry today to bring you an electric guest. He's a former executive in the NFL and the NBA. He's a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, and he is going to talk to you and, well, quite frankly, me about mindset. Please welcome Mr. Paul Epstein. What's going on, Paul? Uh, super fired up to be here, brother. Good. I'm glad. So listen, before we get crackalackin', why don't you give everybody a little bit of your background and it's interesting, right? And and you say NFL and NBA and people are immediately going to gravitate toward that. But it's interesting because you're like the fifth or sixth guest that we've had on that were former NFL, NBA, <laughs> MLB. So there's, I'm sure there's a story there too, but why don't you just take a couple of minutes to bring everybody up to speed? And then I really want to dive in to talk a little bit about your books, the, uh, the one that you've already written, as well as the one that you have coming up. And then also you and I talked a lot about mindset and confidence before we started uh, recording. So I want to get into that and sort of tell everybody how they can go take a confidence quiz that you give them on your website as well, so I'm going to turn it over to you and let you
1: set the table however you like. Hundred percent. So hung out in the NFL and NBA for a decade and a half, so it's 15 years from an entry to executive level. But I think similar to a lot of us that consume sports, we all watch sports center, and then we realize that in business and life, very rarely is it about the highlights. It's really just kind of that gritty grind, that kind of behind the scenes peek behind the curtain, if you will. So how's this for a backdrop? So I came up through the sales and biz dev lane. And when I started, the team president said, Paul, in this business, we sell one of two things, hope or results. If your team that you're a part of wins a lot of games, you're lucky enough to get to sell the results of the field, the court, or the ice, whatever sport it is. And if you don't win a lot of games, you got to get pretty darn good at selling hope. So out of 15 years, 14 losing seasons, I got to experience the playoffs once, and so people started to call me the Hope Dealer. And that's really the backdrop, brother, because when I started entry-level sales for the then LA Clippers, this is back in the Kobe and Shaq Laker days, so we were the redheaded stepchild. We were the other team in the building. And I remember a couple months before I start, ESPN says, you're the worst brand in sports. Then week two on the job, Sports Illustrated says, you're the worst franchise in sports history. And you got to sell that. And that was just a piece of the Clippers experience. Then navigate out to after selling and then sales management ranks at the Clippers. You go to the New Orleans Hornets. Uh, least economically viable franchise in league history. So the then commissioner, David Stern, comes in and gives us an ultimatum. After we were last in the league in season tickets, he basically gave us this insurmountable goal of saying you got to go from last to first, one campaign to the next. And it had to be bigger than basketball because people in the South were so in on football. Hell, we were losing battles to hunting and fishing, believe it or not. Like that was the type of marketplace that it was. So we had to have this franchise-saving campaign. And all these things have these happy endings in the chapter, but I'm just giving you some of the backdrop. Sacramento Kings, Paul, yes, you're in sales leadership, but HR leans in and says, you give a damn about company culture. We want you to take charge of these culture initiatives. And then a month after, bang, league-wide labor lockout. So how do you manage morale in an environment where it feels like people's livelihoods? are taken away. And what I realized, David, is in a world that's stuck on defense, I consider defense adversity, setbacks, hurdles, obstacles, all the things that get in the way of us and winning. How do you play offense in defensive environments? And so all of these early stops were just breeding grounds. This is the birthplace. Yes, I now am a best-selling author of a book called The Power of Playing Offense. But the origin story was I had to walk through those fires in order to be able to share a little bit about the trophies. I think more importantly, it's all of the insights that come from the losses. And and, and you really just frame that up from an environmental standpoint. But what those places did, it gave me a platform of not only performance, but of confidence, because you know that there's really no storm that can beat you after you've been through these early battles. So from there, I joined an agency that's owned by the Jones and Steinbrenner family, which for those, even if you're not a sports fan, maybe you don't know the Joneses and Steinbrenners. They own the Yankees and Cowboys. And so you're talking the biggest blue chip brands that are out there. And I joined their agency, ended up at the NFL League office, and we broke an all-time Super Bowl revenue record. And then the last place, and then I'll kick it back to you, is I was head of revenue for the San Francisco 49ers. So helped them open up Levi Stadium, billion-dollar campaigns, massive expectations. So some of those revenue wins, they were sprinkled throughout. Bigger, sexier trophies came at the end. Um, And then it was at the Niners that I had this life-changing retreat, and that's... Leads to this eventual Jerry Maguire leap. So I'll kick it back to you and we can double-click on anything that you feel resonates with our community here. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, I think it's interesting because we were recording an episode right before this one. And anytime I hear people that are at the top of their game now, they came from something where they weren't, right? It's it's the people who are able to forge through and you know, push past all of the reasons everybody else quits. And that's why you end up winning. And the remark that I made in something that I've always said, I've always felt like in great adversity, there's great opportunity, as long as you're Mm -hmm. willing and able to see that. And I think it's directly translatable to where we are as a country right now and how, you know, things have just are still sort of, to some degree, trying to emerge completely from the shadow of COVID that was cast over the country for a couple of years. Think about mindset. If you're an outside salesperson and now all of a sudden you can't go out and cold call people (laughs) anymore, or you can't meet with them in person. There's a subset of people who probably just said, you know what? I'm done. I can't do my job anymore. I'm going to quit. Then there were people who tried to figure out something and maybe treaded water. But then there are people who realized, you know what? This is probably going to be this way for a while. How we communicate is going to change moving forward. Let me figure out how I can get better online, have a better online presence. Let me figure out if I can tweak my presentation style to be more accommodating for Zoom, because I feel like we're going to have to meet with people in that environment moving forward. And so I call people, Adopters, adapters, and do nothings. There's no real scientific <laughs> method to that. But to me, an adopter is somebody. They were the people who already had the already had the webcam, already had the Zoom account, already had been meeting online to a certain degree or maybe issuing video proposals instead of doing things in person. So when Covid came, those people with the flip of a switch went completely remote they didn't skip a beat because they had sort of seen some of this was coming or at least suspected they needed to have a backup plan or that business environment was changing and people needed to be able to do business more online than otherwise. Adapters are the people who went to go ahead and buy the webcam on Amazon after they found out COVID was going to be here for a little while, may have gotten one, maybe didn't, because for a while there they didn't have them, you know? And then the do-nothings basically just sat back and said, yeah, it'll, it'll pass, we'll be fine, don't worry about it. And a lot of those people, depending on the industry, may have ended up, going out of business because they didn't take the threat seriously. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what we face in hurricane season here in Tampa every single summer, because, you know, we dealt with this with Ian last year, Tampa dodged a bullet. And I don't think, you know, that it was necessarily a blessing to us. And before people start throwing tomatoes, let me clarify that. It was certainly a blessing. We didn't get hit. What wasn't a blessing is we didn't get hit and people think that it's never going to happen to us. You know, mm. When that storm turned at the last second, it validated a suspicion that a lot of the people in my part of Florida felt all along, and that was, oh, it never hits us. It's not going to hit us. People, at some point, the storm's going to hit, and we have the ability to either decide we're going to be out in front of it, we're going to have all of the protective equipment we need so we can ride it out, or we're just going to get give up and move out and go do something else. And I think that the business world is very similar to that.
1: Yeah, 100%. And even, I mean, business aside, life examples. So when I was in New Orleans, while I was not there during the Katrina years, I most certainly was there in the aftermath of it. And everybody will tell you exact same thing. In their case, the storm didn't turn before it hit the Gulf, right? And so you think about, that's a metaphor though, for life, for business. Uh, To me, adversity is just a non-negotiable. Like People talk about change management and navigating uncertainty. And I'm wondering- when the hell are two days going to be a rinse repeat? Like we live in this constant sense of change and disruption. And so if that those are the table stakes to play, then we might as well armor up. And, and really my mindset, and here's something, since you brought up COVID, I, I always thought this was a really interesting mindset shift. So don't get me started on my opinions about the news because I'm not even telling you I'm swinging one way or the other. I'm just going to tell you that I have challenges with anything in life that divides people because I believe part of my mission and the folks I want to surround myself with, we're not dividers, we're unifiers, right? And like, that's the spirit of what I do and who I am so that you can tell kind of how I feel about the news industry here. But regardless of that, the reason that I had such problems early COVID with all sides of the news, not a station, but all sides was they kept pumping out this word that i think scared and paralyzed people and that word was unprecedented ladies and gentlemen this is unprecedented and look i'm not doubting the physical and the medical side of what covid was and unless you've been around for a number of generations maybe this was the first time that you or i have dealt with a, a medical pandemic of this size however is adversity if if that part of it's unprecedented is the way that it made you feel unprecedented. So I always ask people, especially in my coaching business, I would say, all right, so how are you feeling right now? Okay, the words were fear, uncertain, risk, anxiety. And I say, cool. Have you ever felt those things before? Of course. How'd you overcome them? And so we basically got this feedback loop of studying the adversities of the past where they already had a success story of overcoming it. We drilled in on the process on how they overcame that. And then I said, take those learnings and insights from overcoming past adversity, apply it, apply it to the adversity of today. And not only are you more prepped for the adversity of today, your armor is now on for the future storms that you don't even know are coming. And so the, the, the simple phrase here was, you've been here before. Where the news was saying unprecedented, I was strictly reminding people, you've been here before. And that in itself was a confidence boost to say that maybe I haven't been through a pandemic, but I've overcome fear. I've gotten through my stress and anxiety. I've gone through highly volatile and uncertain things in my career and life, and I'm still here. But sometimes we forget about that when a storm strikes.
0: Yeah, it's... um it's it's really interesting when you look back, and I, I agree with you, I I, I want to go back to something you said because I am a hundred percent in alignment with the thought process of I don't want to surround myself with anything divisive. It doesn't matter if it's people, if it's a thing, yeah. if it's a, you know, I mean alcohol could be divisive depending on sure. the the crowd that you run with right so yep. I don't ever want to do anything that is going to be divisive for my current environment you know you can't please yep. all people all the time I think we can go ahead and we can agree to that right because even if you're the nicest guy in the world somebody's going to have a problem with you being too nice I mean it's just the way <laughs> it's just the way that works and you know it's interesting to me because I feel like sometimes in leadership or when you're visible in your industry, a lot of times people will take your um, and I say your, but our um sort of non-divisive middle of the road, I don't know is necessarily the best approach. I think non-divisive or best words, I think non-divisive probably is. But you know, just the fact that all you want to do is bring people together. That that's much, you know, to me, much easier and much more <laughs> rewarding. But I think a lot of times you're viewed. You know, we're viewed as soft. You know, oh, you don't want to pick sides. You don't want to make a commitment. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. Well, I I can understand the thought process, but I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree because I think that you're actually stronger if you are willing to take a position that is not the easier position. Because let's face it in many times you're going to be disagree- you're always going to be disagreeing with one of two sides just the same but there are times when you can alienate both sides on an issue because neither thinks you're giving them the support that you need and i think you know the thought process on covid and then all of the debate around the vaccine and the masks and all of that stuff and here we are man we are getting ready to go into the most brutal couple of years that we are going to go through until the next time we have a presidential election <laughs> like I am not looking forward to any of this at all so I guess my question is from somebody who practices bringing people together as opposed to dividing what do you do to condition your own mind how do you exercise your own mind to get into the place where you realize you know it's really important because you know you try you, you write I write you go you're a keynote speaker I'm a keynote speaker I mean I speak to Probably a couple hundred thousand people a year at this point. And I know that those people are hanging on literally every single thing that I say if I'm doing my job right.
1: How do you prepare yourself mentally to go in and deal with that? Yeah, that's a great one. I'm so glad that we're coming to this point in the conversation because I'd rather not talk about the easy stuff. And, and we're immediately going into the deep end of the pool here. And here's kind of my thought process. And by background. So I've always had this kind of inner sense and maybe why I'm no longer in sports. I mentioned that life-changing retreat. What happened at that retreat was for the first time in my career in life, I started to understand who I was from the inside out. So it was very much a personal transformation. The Niners team president, all of his reports of which I was one of them. We found our why, we found our core values. And I was the crazy one in the room that got obsessed with how the hell do I apply these things on Monday morning? Like it wasn't because North Stars don't work in storms. They just don't. Like you give up, you get in that scarcity mindset. And look, we're all guilty of it. But here's the catch. The people that persevere, the people that are going to, to your point, stay disciplined, stay committed, regardless of what the outside environments are. And you asked how I condition myself. I'm a firm believer that this is a confidence game. We'll we'll talk about confidence a lot in this conversation because I think that is the pillar of everything. And the way that I view confident sellers, confident leaders, confident teams, people that can endure those storms, they know who they are and they're consistently acting on it. So meaning if your insides are who you are and your outsides is how you show up, there's no disconnect. The challenge is a lot of us show up randomly, sporadically. How do I feel today? What's the weather like? What's the outside noise? We struggle with imposter syndrome. My boss is an a-hole, like whatever environmental circumstance there is. And then it messes with us. And then if we haven't done the hard work of figuring who we are from the inside out, if I don't know my why, if I don't know my values, if I'm not stepping in every day with purpose on purpose, then what do I hang my hat on? When the environment gets hard. So, for me, what I've really tried to do, whether in the mirror or coaching to others, is we got to master that inside game. And if you can't tell me definitive, definitively who you are, like why are you getting out of bed? Who are you doing it for? Who are you dedicating this toward? You know, I, this thing about purpose purpose is the thing in life I've learned, it keeps you on the treadmill especially on the days you want to get off. Purpose keeps you on the treadmill, especially on the days you want to get off. And folks, treadmill, you could mean it literally, you could mean it metaphorically. Basically, any single battle, any single marathon, any single journey that you go through, without the why, without the purpose, there's no inner motivation to get up off the mat. I, I don't question whether we get knocked down. Of course we do. Is there a deeper burn and desire for why do I need to get up? Because uh, if I'm anything like the average person listening in, we've been knocked down more than our fair share of times, but yet sometimes you got up and sometimes you didn't. And now you need to study why you did in certain cases and why you didn't, right? And sometimes we attach family to it. Sometimes uh, th- there's just a, a bigger cause. There's a bigger mission. But you know, when you ask, how do I condition myself? it's holding myself accountable to the standards of, am I living my values every single day? Am I doing that because confidence equals values times action? That's the equation. Confidence equals values times action. And that multiplication is the consistency. If we're doing it day in, day out, then I'm saying, look, I know who I am, imperfect, infallible, all these things. But I'm doubling down on the decisions and the actions that I'm taking that are connected to who I am on the inside. So for me, that's the number one recipe of how you get through a storm. If you never call a timeout to figure out who you are on the inside, you're just gonna inevitably struggle to get through storms.
0: I think that is great advice. Um, I, you know, it's not easy, man. Is it? No like, is it easy? <laughs> it's absolutely not. You know, I think that. One of the things that I would say if you were to ask the same question to me, one of the things that I think helps me a lot, I've always believed that if you are in alignment mind body spirit. I'm not like mm. some Buddhist, you know, yeah. I'm not I'm not into that. I just I in that I'm not knocking it either before we get off the rails here. I think mind body spirit, if those three things are operating in harmony at any given time, that's when I've always Produced my best work product, no matter what it is, right? And so it doesn't work the same if you go to the gym, but you don't read and you don't take time to meditate or do something to appeal to your faith, religious, lack of religion, whatever. If you have all three of those things in place, to me, they work in concert inside my head. I'm much calmer. I'm able to do the things I need to do and I get the best results because. I don't feel like if you have a, a great, you know, if your body's in great shape, but you have a dull mind, what are you really bringing to the table for the organization you work with? Unless you're a model, right? Unless you're somebody who you're only paid for what you look like or what kind of physical shape you're in. But it's the same thing if you're not in as good a shape and your mind is sharp you're still not the best representation of the brand whether that brand is you or the company you work with because you show up hey he's a great guy but David's a bit disheveled in his appearance you know the guy could use a little less happy meals and a few more sit-ups you know I, I that that's a problem too and from my perspective, you know to me the one that's the hardest honestly is not the hardest used to be was reading, reading nonfiction specifically to make my Mm. mind just stay alert and sharp. And so when I committed to reading, I I set a very lofty goal by the standards of average people, you know, that I was going to read a dozen books that year. Okay. Now, if you go, I think Dave Ramsey throws it out there that the statistic is the average adult has not read more than two nonfiction books from the time they graduate high school to the time they're 40 years old. Whether Dave made that up or that's a fact, I've heard him say it, so I'm going to run with it and just assume it's relatively close, if not truthful. Here's the reality, though. It's how you perceive the task. If you mm-hmm. came to me and said, David, I want you to read 12 books a, 12 books this year, I'm going to already start freaking out because in reality, I may not have read any books the last two years because yep. I just don't read anymore, um, I, and um, I do read, get that clear. However if you would have come to me and said, David, did you know that you could read 12 books next year if you just spent 10 minutes a day reading? Every day. Hmm. 10 minutes. How many many people out there right now screw off on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever else, when you could take 10 minutes at the very beginning of your day, block it out and go read? If you read 10 minutes a day, at a bare minimum, you're going to read 10 pages times 30 days a month is 300 pages. That's an average book, maybe even a little bit bigger, depending on what you're reading. And you do that for 12 months out of the year. You've just read 12 books. But if you tell somebody, we expect you to read a dozen books at the onset, you're setting them up to fail from the beginning.
1: Setting them up to fail. And by the way, man, I, I knew in, even in our pre-chat, there was a lot of kindred spirit stuff going on. Ironically, you just said mind, body, spirit. And so let me let me give you my reframe of that because for you, mind, body, spirit works and anything that works, by the way, where you're listening in, if you need to paraphrase what we're saying, but it works for you, you do you. (laughs) I don't get stuck on the details or the phrase. I get stuck on how does it apply to you and what works for you. So my version of mind, body, spirit, and actually in the new book, the one that's coming out here, uh, September of this year I call it the head, heart, hands equation. So the book is Better Decisions Faster, but the application method that applies to everybody listening in is the head, heart, hands equation. So 60 second masterclass, if head is your mindset and heart is your authenticity, so that's your truth, and then hands are action, head plus heart equals hands, meaning when deciding whether to use your hands or not, whether to take action on something or not, there's two checkpoints, your head and your heart. When your head is on board, do I think it's a good idea? If your heart is on board, the question is, do I feel it's a good idea? And so with that, when your head and heart are on board, that's a green light. You attack that action. When one of the two is on board, it's a yellow light. That's where a lot of business and life lie, and that's the messy middle of yellow when neither is on board it's a red light we shouldn't do it or we should stop doing it so really my thesis for writing the book was let's fill our life with more green lights head and heart fully ignited now that we're aware stop running reds cuz all these problems that exist in the world which hey we've all struggled through them i'm stuck i'm burned out i'm fatigued i'm not happy i'm not fulfilled that's not a byproduct of running one red light that's 61224 48 months of running red lights without even knowing it. And then we wonder how the hell did I get here? And (laughs) so I'm writing the book to fill your life with more greens, stop running reds. And here's that playbook for how to conquer that messy middle of yellow. And so your mind, body, spirit is my head, heart, hands. And reflecting back, if you were to say, Paul, how do you in the mirror kind of prep yourself for the tougher times? I would say that equal for storms and in blue skies, align your head, heart and hands, and then you just can't lose.
0: Absolutely. So as you're talking about mindset, you're talking about some of the things that you do to prep yourself. I can't help but look over your left shoulder and see a sign that says win Monday.
1: And I hate to put you on the spot by asking this, but does that change every day? (laughs) Uh, No, it doesn't. And and that's the name of my community, the name of my podcast. And you know, if I could give the quick riff on it, the sure, reason it doesn't the reason it doesn't change is because to me, it's it's separation season. For a lot of people, that's the worst day of the week, the day they most dread. Sometimes it ruins a Sunday. and everybody is fantasizing about Friday, but I try to surround myself with people that want to attack Monday. It doesn't mean Monday's going to be glorious. It doesn't mean the birds are chirping. La- actually, no. It's just as hard for me as it is for the next person. But there's a couple things. One is, When other people take their foot off the gas or they're just not ready to go, that's when I can separate. So, for all the producers listening in, like it's really hard to out hustle somebody on the highest activity day of the week. Your delta is not going to be that big. So, for me, whether it's Mondays, whether it's post Thanksgiving, where a lot of folks, you know, last 30 to 45 days of the year, that's separation season right there. And that's really kind of how I think about it. And then the last piece about Monday that I'm pretty fired up about is that it means that you enjoy what you do. Work brings you happiness. Like it's an energizer, not a depleter, you know? And so not to say that everybody's in their dream job, not everybody's in their dream career, but what bothers me is when somebody's not willing to act on changing that situation. Because here's what I know to be true. By time, we're going to work over 100,000 hours. The next bucket of time is going to be sleep. And the last bucket of time, the smallest bucket, is everything else. Family, friends, Mai Tai's in Hawaii, all that stuff. It's the smallest bucket of time. So if the bigger bucket is work and we can find meaning and enjoyment and fulfillment in the work, the dominoes into the rest of your life are much easier to follow because, David, you and I, we're not a light switch. If I hate my job, I'm not going to come home and be the best husband and father. It's just not going to happen. It's not. But if I can find that joy, find that fulfillment, find that purpose, if I feel like it's bigger than me and there's impact and it's measurable and I truly am on a mission, man, that's going to bring the best Paul out everywhere else in life. And I think we all know that. But the challenge here is, again, what's the bigger pain, the pain of same or the pain of change? And I just know so many people that say, no, dude, I'm not digging what I'm doing. But if they don't do anything about it, it's like, ah, you know, like that's, those are the folks that you really just kind of want to want to say, like, when's that wake up call going to come?
0: Absolutely. So, how do you convince somebody to start down this path? I mean, there's a lot of strong headed people that are negative. I feel like some of the negative people are even more bullheaded than the positive people out there. I mean, and I don't know which, to be honest with you, man, I don't know which one annoys my personality more, the overly chipper, (laughs) extremely happy, everything's great. Or, you know, the get off my lawn guy, you know, all of that. How do you, how do you get through to, to somebody? I mean, I, Aside from the fact they have to want you to, they have to want to to get better, they have to want to change to a certain degree. How do you handle that?
1: Yeah, this comes up a lot in the culture work that I do. And when somebody talks to me about culture transformation or changing the behavior of people from the individual to the collective, I have a metaphor that I use that basically, out of any single group of people, there's three subsets partners. Tourists and prisoners. Okay. Partners, tourists, prisoners. So, a partner, if we're all in a room, front row, leaning in, they're engaged, the energy is good. Even if you don't agree with them, they're the ones that keep the team and organization moving forward. A tourist, there's a fork in the road. Some go left, some go right. If uh, they take some pictures and if it goes well, they're happy they came. If it doesn't go well, they blame you, the tour guide. And then the last group, prisoners, arms are folded. 5 30, can't get here soon enough. I was voluntold to be here. That's a partner. That's a tourist. That's a prisoner. Now, when I used to, as a leader and now as a consultant, when I used to go through my culture transformation efforts, I used to do it all wrong. I did the opposite. I try to fix the prisoners. And I realized two things. One, it doesn't work. All change has to be willing, to your point, David. The other thing is, It drained every ounce of energy out of me to the point I had nothing left to pour into the people that did want to be there. And so now my message is shine a light on your partners. Those bright spots can scale and that's how you transform a culture. So for you as an individual, I I think that all culture can be local. It's not about the, the bigger piece. When you and I walk in a room, we either warm it up or we cool it off. The question is, are we aware of our own temperature? That's the question. So for somebody listening in and they say, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure if I want to change it. So the question is, in this journey of change, do you have a partner mindset? Do you have the energy of a partner? Are you consistently entering into the day and the process of an eventual change with a spirit to warm it up? Like, you're, you're just adding good energy to a situation that you just want to get better or to be different. And we're not promising the result tomorrow. But where I see folks miss the mark is just, A, I challenge and say, do you have a partner's mindset? I also challenge to say, are you consistently warming up the rooms that you're entering? And do you actually want to change? Like, it's easy to say we want change, but then to actually go in with it. Again, I'm I'm all about that deeper burn, the deeper why, the deeper purpose. And if that burn isn't deep enough, then the pain of change is always going to be greater than suffering through the pain of same.
0: Yeah, I... it's interesting. I think that probably a lot of people out there need to go through an exercise of figuring out, I mean, I hate to say this, but why Why are we even doing what we're doing? Totally. Why, why am I in insurance? Why do I own an insurance and risk management firm? Why do I take my time to have an online coaching community where I teach other people the same things and tools that have helped make me relatively successful in this industry? And I think that you know, for me, and I'm assuming you're the same way, I'm pretty self-aware, man. I know the things that I'm good at, I know the things I'm not. I know the personality traits that I have that are the best. I know the ones I have that are not as desirable, you know? And and I am very self-aware and there are things that I do to work on the things that I need to get better at and be better and the things that I'm already good at to become the best at. In your experience, though, in the general population out there, how many people are even willing to introvert, like just introspectively look at themselves and and identify, you know, where they're at, where they want to be, where they've been, you know, establish a timeline to get there or milestones in terms of steps along the way. How many people are willing to do that? And if they're willing,
1: how many even know where to start? Yeah, it's a great one. And Well, I think it's impossible to drill in on an exact number. I'll just use majority and minority as two markers. And I'll tell you, the majority of folks haven't done that inner work. But here's my challenge to that majority is, and by the way, this is not the scoreboard that I currently have, but what I used to have and maybe what a lot of folks have is we measure success based on trophies, achievements, Title, money, responsibilities, wealth, all, all these things. And then sometimes, like again, at post my Y transformation, then I started to measure more the inner stuff of happiness and fulfillment. And those were things that did not resonate with me on the surface early to mid-career. And now I, I kind of have a different lens. But here's what I would say: regardless of what your measurement of success is, for the folks that you believe are the most successful, if you were to audit them. And ask them, have they put themselves in intentional environments to better understand themselves? Sometimes it's a retreat, sometimes it's a coaching program, but have they done some of that inner work? And the answer this I can confidently say it's close to 100%. It's a 90 to 100% range of I have done the inner work to know who I am, to know why I do what I do, to have a vision on where I'm going to position it as a mission so that I don't give up at the first signs of hurdles, obstacles, setbacks, adversity. Like this is the fortitude that's needed. And so, you know, I would just say, sometimes it's, it's one of those where, you know, we, we have an excuse of time. We say that, uh, or to your point, maybe we don't know where to start. And, and I would just say, you're probably one conversation away from starting to pick up this information you know, ask yourself who's the most inspired person you know, who's the most positive person you know, who has what you don't have. And what's the value of a coffee with them? Not to talk about what you can gain from it, but just more learning about their journey and success leaves clues. Like I I've learned this now, and you know this, David. There was a day before you ever wrote a book. There was a day before you ever delivered a speech. I'm sure you're a drastically transformed person now not only because of what you've been through, but the countless people that you've impacted. And when we're studying other people and we're pouring ourselves into kind of that service contribution impact zone, that becomes the most helpful way of us figuring out who we are too, because we're going to say that feels awesome, but that didn't resonate. This feels awesome. This resonated and success leaves clues. So I would say just reach out to the folks around you that have what you want and i'm not talking just material i'm talking the intangibles and just study up on their journey and then the more people you talk to the more common threads you'll find
0: yeah you know it's interesting because i think that one of the things that i've learned over time is it's okay to let go and just open up and be vulnerable too about some of the totally. things that you that you've been through you know it's great if you're achieved success that other people find to be where they want to be. But if you only focus on the, where you're at versus where you've come from and where you've been along the way, what real service are you giving to anybody? That's why they have the artificial belief that, oh, it's easy for him. He must've been, you know, it he must, he, he must've had his agency handed to him or, you know, any number of other things when you don't, take the time to talk about all of the other stuff. And one of the things that I, and honestly, for me personally, it's difficult sometimes because some of the, some of the motivators, some of the whys behind the reason I do what I do are so closely held and emotional that I got to be able to get through talking about where I've been and what I've come from, you know? Otherwise, I'm just going to they're going to wonder who this guy is, the, the blubbering idiot up on stage. But, you know, for me, my why is easy. My why is is, is my family. It's my kids. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything that I do is to provide a better life for them than what I've been able to provide for myself to this point and a different childhood than what I grew up in not that the childhood that i grew up in was bad wasn't it was it was every it was the same as pretty much every kid that grew up in the 80s but why would i raise a family in the 2020s like i was raising a family in the 80s we have to progress we have to push to get better and so my fa- my family and spending time with them and raising kids right because i believe honestly the only way we're going to change the the world is to be a shining light in that world and truthfully have kids and raise them the right way and let them carry that torch because we're not going to fix the world's issues in our generation. It's not going to happen. It didn't get here in a generation. It's not going to get cleaned up. We need to have a much broader thought process on that. But what really changed for me is when my youngest son was born, I have four kids. I have my three older boys, my my three boys. And then my little girl is, is the baby and we're out at four because now we have her. But my youngest son has very significant neurological issues to the point that he'll never be able to live on his own. He will always have to live in our home with us. We'll always have to care for him. We always have to fight for him. You know, I don't know. This is probably going to be a shocker to a lot of people listening to this, but the public school system isn't out there just handing out resources because you have a kid that needs them. You have to go fight to get those resources. And for me, my why became more of a conviction to make sure that I was doing everything I could, not just for Ethan, because he's my son. What I learned through the process of advocating for my son with his special needs is that for every one Ethan that's out there that has a set of parents that are willing to go to the mat for him, there's probably seven or eight of them that don't have anybody advocating. And if I can take my platform, if I can take what I've learned, if I can take my financial resources or my network and connections to help advocate for all of the kids that have similar issues to Ethan or all of the kids in that specific school that he's going to that maybe aren't getting what they need, my life is far more fulfilling for that. I don't need the money, man. And I don't say that flippantly or arrogantly but I grew up eating boxed macaroni and cheese and raw man noodles in my early twenties, you know, and I, and we laugh and we joke about it. Wasn't funny when you were going through it, it was what you mm-hmm. did to survive, you know? And we, we talk, I, 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 talk about it when I'm, you know, when I speak publicly, it wasn't just that I ate boxed macaroni and cheese. I ate boxed macaroni and cheese and bought an extra thing of macaroni and then added water to the sauce so I could get two or three days out of (laughs) that box, you know? And when you go through that in life, you appreciate what you have so much more. I think that we sometimes become inclined to forget about those things. And and I don't think that it's necessarily um, because we won't talk about it. I think that when you go through tough times where, you, you know, look, man, I've told people before, I've been in such a bad spot financially in my life that I would hear the microwave beeping and run to the front door thinking it was somebody coming to repossess my truck. So, Mm. you know, it was that bad at one point. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I think that, uh, we need to embrace more of that. I think that, that if, you've, if you've hit the other side of the mountain, it's okay to talk about the climb to get to the top before you went to the other side. And honestly, that's probably as valuable or more valuable to the people who go listen to us talk than the people who want to hear all the cool stuff we're doing now.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's infinitely more lessons and insights before you feel... And And by the way, this whole concept of climbing mountains, which is a great visual for us to think about, you know this, David, and and a lot of folks listening in that quote unquote have hit a peak or a pinnacle and something that they were striving for at one point in time. Man, I'll, I'll tell you, like one one example for me is first book becoming a best selling author, and dude, the magic was gone within like twelve to twenty four hours. Like I was like, where the hell is the confetti? You know, like you almost want this. You try so hard and you think it's such an important badge of honor and this trophy, and then you get there and then you realized. Is this it? Like, this is what I invested and dedicated years of my life for. This feeling, and it feels like empty and hollow. And, you know, and then you start realizing that if this was leveraging sports here, if the point of goals is to score goals and then you score a goal, you realize that another net just pops up. It's just another ball to kick. It's a bigger goal to go attack and then the next one. And that so you never get there. Like there's no finish line. It's a very arbitrary thing, which is why the whole point of like not becoming overly obsessed with outcomes and results and being more about enjoyment of the journey and the process, which I know sounds like vanilla fluffy talk. I'm telling you from somebody that has scored goals that they only get bigger. You never feel like you made it. You climb and you climb and you climb and oh, it's the pinnacle. And then you realize it's not. And I don't know one person that can challenge me on that, that in in earnest has achieved at a high, high level. They all will tell you the same thing. You win one Super Bowl, you want to win a second, you win a third. It never stops. And oftentimes, the da- there's a downward slope of a lot of things that matter to us. In your case, family and other, there's a trade-off. In overly attacking these ambitious things, not to say we shouldn't be ambitious, but I think it's just defining what success looks like in our own words and and just understanding the why underneath it. Like for you, with your fam, for me, my late father, I lost in 19. If I can make my dad proud every day, then it was a day worth living. And I have a process for how I do that. But that's my metric of success because in my worst moments, I wouldn't make him proud. In my best moments, I know I do. And it's because of how many folks I'm helping along the way. But that's something I did not talk about in sports. I was not comfortable with vulnerability. My authenticity meter was not like I had two different versions of me. And so I just wanted to kind of, you know, put that out there.
0: Yeah, it often gets it gets confusing when there's two different versions of you, too, man. You don't know which one you're supposed to be at what time. So listen, we're getting to the point where we've been going for about an hour. I know that when we talked ahead of time, you told me about both of the books that you've written. And we mentioned the first one, The Power of Playing Offense, but you've got another one coming out. And we did mention it, but sort of glossed over it. Uh, Better Decisions faster, Faster, Unshakable Confidence When You Need It Most. And in addition, and what I think would be a great lead-in for that, you have a confidence quiz that you make available on your website for people who go there to uh, just gauge their level of confidence, right? So I want you to talk about that here in just a second, but I want to let everybody know uh, we will be giving away a dozen copies of Power of The Power of Playing Offense. Follow my directions, people. This is where we get you to sort of get off the rails a little bit. All I really need you to do is send an email to david@killingcommercial.com. David killingcommercial.com. Please do not send it to my Florida risk partner's email. I will delete it and not respond. It needs to go to the right email address, number one. Number two, I need the subject to say offense. And the reason why is I sort my emails by subject. Now I can have all of the ones I need to ship books to at the same time. And then the third thing I need you to do... <laughs> Listen up, knuckleheads. Give me your freaking shipping address. The number of times I get emails that just have the name of the book and the subject or the word in the subject to the right email address, and then that's it. I have to know where to ship the thing. So g- give me your name and your shipping address. And the first dozen people, we're going to send out a copy of the book. So with that being said, and before we wrap up, let's drive them to the website, Paul. Talk a little bit about the confidence quiz and give them the URL to get there. And then I'll also make sure we get that into the
1: show notes when we release. For sure. So the easiest way to get it, paulepsteinspeaks.com and right there in the main nav bar, the confidence quiz. Here's what's in it for you. So my belief is that life is a game of decisions and actions. Like if everybody listening in audited your past and relative to career relationships, business, strategy, like the quality of your decisions essentially dictates the quality of your life. And so these high stakes decisions can have massive implications. And what happens is we step into these critical forks in the road and there's stress and there's anxiety. If you're running a company, there's decision fatigue and overwhelm, and we're paralyzed. And then we make the worst possible decision, which is indecision. And the number one way to battle through all these very human feelings is unshakable confidence. So when you take the confidence quiz, not only will you get the score of 1 to 100, you're also going to be delivered on the back end, the 12 ways and the 12 keys of building unshakable confidence. So again, go to paulepsteinspeaks.com, right there, main nav bar confidence quiz. You can't miss it. And uh, happy to stay a part of the tribe and, and just ignite future impact together.
0: Good deal, man. Well, listen, I know your schedule is likely busier than mine. So I wanted to take a second just to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your story. Look forward to reading both of your books. I'm going to pick up a copy of each and you never know, man, I may peruse my way over there and and take the old confidence quiz. Although I will say, (laughs) um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Josh Braun or not. He's on LinkedIn, like crazy sales guy. And uh, he's speaking at our conference that I put on in Key West every summer. And we were going, he and I were talking back and forth about a couple of things. And he told me, he's like, I have to tell you, man. Whether you're right or wrong, you've got to be one of the most confident people that I know. So now I'm going to go take the quiz and compare it to see if Josh knows what he's talking about or not. If you happen to hear this, Braun, don't throw shade (laughs) at me either. So anyhow, listen, thanks so much for coming on. Look forward to shipping out books. And then we will also give everybody a reminder, but so that you know, the pre-orders for unshakable confidence will start late july around the 26th and the launch date You've is two months later so Power you want to make sure you get Podcast. your order in for that on the first you can go around Killing paul thank you so much look forward to uh following your if you success want as it your continues to, to build wish level. you nothing next but the best Check thank you book, so much brother really enjoyed it two minutes yes sir and our website killingcommercial.com